Our scripture reading this morning is going to be all of Psalm 18, all 50 verses. So take your Bible and look with me at God's word in Psalm 18. And just going to let you know ahead of time, there are 50 verses, so we're not going to go too deep into this passage today. We're going to kind of water ski over it because it would take us five or six sermons to cover everything here. But we're going to kind of skim through Psalm 18 today, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I have taken refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. 
He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is simple. Satisfy our hearts this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. How do I even begin today? How do I even begin to say what I'm going to say? I don't even know. I've struggled to tell you this, so I guess I should just say it and get it out of the way. So let's just do that. But you've got to promise me that you'll hear me out. Is that a deal? Promise that you'll hear me out and not walk out, okay? Here it is. Your love for God stinks. How's that for a sermon introduction? How's that for a pastoral move at the beginning of a sermon? Just throw people under the bus. That'll get them to listen to you. Yeah, see, the, the problem when you start a sermon this way is that back in the day, people didn't have smartphones and they couldn't email you immediately. You can pull out a phone and email me immediately and say, how dare you say that my love for God stinks? That's the world we live in but I just threw you under the bus. But the reality, if we're honest with ourselves, is that our love for God stinks. My love for God stinks. Your love for God stinks. It could be said of Moses and David and Paul, but it could not be said of Jesus. His love for God was wholehearted. Ours, on the other hand, not so much. Our love for God stinks. Love stinks. That's what the Jay Giles band sang in their song by the same title. Do you remember them? You love her, the song says, but she loves him and he loves somebody else. You just can't win. 
And so it goes till the day you die, this thing they call love is going to make you cry. I've had the blues, the reds, and the pinks. One thing for sure, love stinks. Yeah, yeah, love stinks. You remember that song? Catchy 80s song that captures the nature of love and romance and relationships in this fallen, broken world. You love her, but she loves him, and he loves somebody else. You just can't win. We're like that with Jesus. We move from one lover to another, but he loves us unconditionally. We chase after other lovers and after lover after lover, after we leave all of our lovers behind and we come back to Jesus, he still loves us. And that's why I say our love, our commitment, our devotion to God stinks. We say we love him one moment and then we love sin the next. Welcome to life as a believer in a fallen world. Our love for God stinks. And believers in the Old Testament knew this. They would have readily admitted that their love for God could be filed under S for stinks. Now before we continue talking today about how bad our love for God stinks. I don't want you to get depressed. Let's detonate a gospel bomb before we move forward, okay? Because we're gonna hear the demands of the law. We're gonna hear that we don't measure up. We're gonna hear that our love stinks. And I don't want you to go crazy. I don't want you to run out of here. I don't want you to go jump off a cliff because you're gonna be told over and over again that your love for God stinks. So let's get some gospel in here at the very beginning so that some of you can hang on for hope. Here it is. The gospel is a promise that no matter how weak we are, no matter how much we fail, no matter how bad our love for God stinks, God will not let us go. That's good news. Grace is the good news of the gospel that God is always holding on to us. No matter how we fail him, no matter how fickle we are, his love endures forever. And that's why grace is different from the law. The law demands, God's law, the moral requirements that he has and expects of every human being. They're summed up in the Ten Commandments, but you could sum them up even more with what Jesus said when he said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the law, that's the demand. Be perfect as God is perfect. So the law makes demands of us. The law, God's law, demands that we be perfect, that we never sin. But grace doesn't make demands. Grace plays by its own rules. Grace doesn't come and make demands of us to hold on to God. The gospel doesn't do that. Well, the gospel is a promise that no matter how weak we are, no matter how much we fail, no matter how bad our love stinks, no matter how fickle we are, God will not let us go. That's good news to this sinner. Now let me share something with you that I've told you before that I find very, very interesting. And again, promise to hear me out and not walk out, okay? Did you know that in the Old Testament, you can't find anybody saying that they love God? Isn't that interesting? 
I find it very interesting that of all the songs and the prayers written in the Old Testament, no one says, I love you, God. Not one person in the Old Testament ever directly tells God that they love him. Think about that. There are plenty of commands for us to love God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but no one in the Old Testament ever directly tells God, I love you. Isn't that amazing? No one in the Old Testament tells Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, that they love him. No one tells the Lord directly that they love him. No one does it. No one will dare say that. No one will dare utter those words. No one writes a psalm, a worship song, or a prayer with the words, I love you, Lord. And even in the New Testament, no one tells God directly that they love him. Of course, there's that story in John 21 where Peter tells Jesus three times that he loves him, but Peter actually struggles to utter those words. In fact, Jesus questions Peter three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter, with that agape love, that wholehearted commitment that never fails? And Peter's response every time is, I love you like a brother. I love you like a brother. I do not love you with agape love. I do not love you with wholehearted commitment. I do not love you with this serious commitment, this loyal lover, love that never fails. Because what had Peter done the few days before that? He had failed the Lord, denied the Lord three times. And if you'd like to hear my explanation of that passage, see our series in 1 Peter. It's a sermon titled Falling from the Heights of Arrogance where I kind of unpack the Greek language that's happening there. But no one in the Bible ever speaks or sings of their love for God. And I find that very interesting. And you want to know why? Because what do we like to sing in our songs? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. No one in the Old Testament would dare sing that. No Old Testament saint, no New Testament saint would ever sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. They would never sing that song. You want to know why? Because they were far more comfortable singing, love stinks. Our love for you stinks, but your love, O Lord, endures forever. Your love is steadfast. Old Testament saints knew that they didn't measure up to the standard of God's moral requirements and the perfection that is demanded of us in the law. And Peter knew this as well. So no one in the Old Testament ever tells God that they love him. Now, you may be thinking if you're quick on your feet and smart, but what about Psalm 18? You just read it in verse 1, Benji. What about Psalm 116, verse 1? Those psalms have people telling God that they love him. Yes, they do, or at least they're translated that way into English. Let's look at each one. First, we're going to look at Psalm 116. We'll come back to Psalm 18. You don't have to go there. It'll be on the screen. Psalm 116, verse 1 says this. I love the Lord. I love Yahweh because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. What you can't see in the English translation is that there is no direct object in Hebrew. The Hebrew language reads literally, I love because he heard my voice. There's no direct object. So the writer of this psalm could be referring to anything. He could be saying, I love my wife because the Lord heard my prayer. I love the people of God because the Lord heard my prayer. I love my enemies because the Lord heard my prayer. I love bacon because the Lord heard my prayer. 
There's no direct object in the Hebrew language. It's simply, I love because. And it's just like that in 1 John. In 1 John 4.19, it says, we love because he first loved us. It doesn't say that we love God because he first loved us. It doesn't say we love him because he first loved us. It just says we love because he first loved us. The English Standard Version gets it right, I think. We love because he first loved us. There's no direct object in this verse either. It could be that we love others because he first loved us, or it could be that we love bacon because he first loved us. And isn't bacon proof of his love? Bacon is proof of God's love because in the new covenant, we get to eat bacon. It was off limits to the Old Testament saints. They couldn't eat any sort of pig, sausage, bacon, ham, you know it, but we get to enjoy it. We love bacon because he first loved us. Remember the story in Acts 10 when Peter has the vision, the sheet coming down with all these animals that were off limits in the Old Testament and the Lord tells Peter, interesting, three times there's this conversation back and forth, arise and eat and Peter says, I can't do it. And the Lord says, arise and eat. You can eat this now. Don't call it unclean if I've called it clean. That's Acts chapter 10. We're free to eat bacon now. Listen, my record and my commitment to God stinks. I will tell you that. But let me tell you where I am stellar in my obedience. I can obey Acts 10 with the best of them. I can eat bacon and I am stellar in my obedience to that commandment in Acts chapter 10. Obey, eat, rise up, eat and live. I stink everywhere else in my life, but I'm good at eating bacon. In fact, I had a lot of it this morning. Now, before we get to Psalm 18, let's pause here. I do not want you walking away today thinking that you can't tell God that you love him or that you can't sing that you love him, okay? Please, please hear me out. Don't walk out. Hear what I am saying. If you want to tell Jesus you love him, go for it. If you want to sing to Jesus that you love him, go for it. I am not saying that you cannot tell Jesus that you love him. I am not saying that you cannot sing that you love him. Okay, let me repeat that again. I am not saying that you cannot tell Jesus that you love him or that you cannot sing that you love him. All I'm saying is that I find it very interesting, very curious that no one in the Old Testament, and really, if you understand what's happening with Peter, no one in the New Testament tells God that they love him. Of all the Psalms, of all the songs, of all the prayers, no one would dare utter those words. If you want to do it, go for it. Are we on the same page? I'm not saying that there shouldn't be intimacy and fellowship with you and Jesus. There should be. Your affections for Jesus should run wild. That's why we sing here every week. I want you to sing every week that Jesus is better than the promises of sin. And I want you to mean it from the bottom of your heart. You need to have a very intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. And we'll see from David in Psalm 18, that he has a very intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't have that kind of intimacy in your relationship with Jesus. All I'm trying to do is this. I'm just pointing out what I see in God's word, and I want you to see that the demands for loving God are 100% commitment 
100% of the time, that it's 24-7 with no failure on our part, no decrease in our love, no diminishing in our affections. That's what God's law demands, that we love him perfectly with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, that we never wane in our love for him. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't do this right. We all fail at loving God perfectly, and that's why Jesus came. He came to live the life that we could never live because we are sinners. He came to love God the way that we are supposed to love God, the way that God's law demands And then by faith and trust and repentance, when we trust in him, he credits us with that love. He credits us with his perfect life. He credits us with his righteousness. And so when you begin to understand just how pathetic your love for God is, how you fail him all the time, how your love stinks, And then you hear the good news of the gospel that you get credited with Jesus' love for God, with Jesus' perfect life. Then what will happen is your heart will explode, your affections will run wild, and then you'll sing your heart out. You'll sing with all of your heart that God's love endures forever. And I want that for you. I want that for me. I want that for this church. I'm just trying to show you this morning that no Old Testament saint would ever tell Yahweh that they loved him because they knew that they continually fell short of the demands of the law. I find that very interesting and very telling of the nature of our hearts. But what about Psalm 18, verse one? Let's look at it. Look at verse one, Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. David says, I love you, O Lord. I love you, Yahweh. What you can't see in the English translation is that the word translated as love ain't the word love. It's the Hebrew word rahum, which means compassion. It's a word that means to have these deep feelings of compassion. And because we don't know how to translate, we don't even know how to deal with a translation that says, I compassion you, O Yahweh, or I have deep feelings of compassion for you, O Yahweh, well, then our English translators translate it as, I love you, O Yahweh, but that's not the word. It's not the Hebrew word for love, which is ahav. In fact, Old Testament scholar Daniel Block says this, that the Hebrew word for love, ahav, never occurs with the first person subject, singular or plural, and with God as the direct object. So the Hebrew word for love never occurs with the first person subject, singular or plural, and with God as the direct object. Commenting on Psalm 18, he says, rather than claiming that he loves God, the psalmist creates an awkward sentence. He cannot bring himself to tell God that he loves him. And the reason why David can't bring himself to tell God that he loves him is because David knows the demand of the law and he knows that he falls short. David knows that he's supposed to love God with all of his heart, but he knows he doesn't. David knows his love stinks. But what do we like to sing about in our songs? My love for Jesus. 
My love for God, my surrender, my devotion to you, God, my commitment. For some reason, we are more impressed with our love for God than God's love for us. Think about that. Based on the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray, it would appear that we are far more impressed with our love for God than God's love for us. We love to sing about our love for God. We love to talk about our love for God. We love to pray and tell God about our love for him. Don't you find that very interesting? I'm throwing myself under the bus here, okay? I'm not trying to stir you up or throw you under the bus. I'm throwing myself under the bus this morning. But please understand that. I just want to point out to you this morning that no one tells the Lord that they love him in the Old Testament. And that's why we should be cautious to speak of our supposed radical love for Jesus. And we should be cautious to speak of our crazy love for Jesus. We should be cautious to speak of our love because we don't love the Lord like we should. We don't love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only Jesus loved God the way that the law demands. Only Jesus loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only Jesus was fully surrendered. And that means that we can never be fully surrendered. Only Jesus was fully surrendered. Only Jesus was fully committed to God. Only Jesus' walk with God is impressive. I know mine's not. All I'm trying to do this morning, please understand this, Grace. All I'm trying to do this morning is put the spotlight on Jesus where it belongs. That's all I'm trying to do, to focus on him, to focus on his obedience to the law, his perfect life. Oh, I hope you never, never tire of being staggered by the truth that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he was without sin, that as the the God-man, fully God, fully man, with those two natures united in one person, that he never once sinned, never once. I hope you never tire of being flabbergasted at that truth, that he was obedient to the law of God. That's why I want to put our focus on him this morning on his love for God so that he gets the glory and so that then we see him and we fall on our faces in worship and adoration. That's all I'm trying to do this morning is to turn your eyes to your Savior. Is that a bad thing? I just want you to know this morning that the gospel is a promise That no matter how weak we are, no matter how much we fail, and we fail all the time, no matter how bad our love for God stinks, and it stinks all the time, in spite of all that, God will not let us go. He sees us where we are. He loves us where we are. He accepts us where we are. But as Tim Keller says, his grace won't leave us where we are. It is a transforming grace. We're not denying that. But we keep failing, do we not? Which is why we need God's transforming grace. Which is why we need him to conform us more and more to the image of his son, Jesus. Grace is the good news of the gospel that God is always holding on to us. 
No matter how we fail him, no matter how fickle we are, his love endures forever. And that's why grace is different from the law because the law demands. The law comes and makes demands. The law comes, the law summed up in the Ten Commandments. God's moral law, God demands, God's law demands perfection of us, but grace doesn't make demands. Grace doesn't come and make demands of us. Grace doesn't show up once you're a Christian and say to you, hold on to God with all of your strength. Grace doesn't make demands. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel is a promise, not a demand. It's a promise that no matter how weak we are, how much we fail, how bad our love stinks, how fickle we are, God will not let us go. The bad news is that our love for God comes and goes, doesn't it? Our affections for God, there's this ebb and flow. And so what do we do about that? We humble ourselves and we pray that Jesus would transform our pathetic love for him. And you'll only begin to cautiously say, I love you, Lord, when you realize that you don't measure up. And you'll only begin to cautiously sing, I love you, Lord, when you realize that you don't measure up. And you'll only begin to quit saying things like, I surrender all when you realize that you don't surrender all. Only Jesus surrendered all. You can never surrender all. You can never be fully surrendered. Grace comes when you finally realize and accept the hard, bitter truth that your commitment stinks, that your love for God stinks. See, God's word, his law exposes us. God's law says that we should love him with all of our heart, that we are required to love him wholeheartedly, but we don't. So the law exposes us as sinners. It shows us that we don't love him as we should, and that's where we are. That's where we live. That's where we all live every day. If we're honest and we're willing to admit that, that's our life. We don't love him as we should, and it should humble us. And that's the work of the law, to expose our sin, to expose our shortcomings so that we see that we need a savior, so that we see we need to be rescued. And then that's the work of the gospel. The good news is that it is an announcement that frees us, that Jesus loved God with all of his heart and his work gets credited to us in the gospel. He takes our sin and gives us his perfect record of law keeping, his perfect record of God loving The gospel brings the good news, the announcement that God loves us and he delights in us. The gospel announces the steadfast love of God. The gospel announces that God will not let us go no matter how bad we mess up or how bad we make a mess of our lives. And you have to cling to that truth when you blow it. When your love stinks, his love is steadfast. And we see proof of the Lord's steadfast love in Psalm 18 in verses 6 through 19 when David describes how the Lord intervened to save him. David says that Yahweh showed up this way with earthquakes, smoke from his nostrils. Picture this, fire from his mouth, riding on an angel, thick, dark storm clouds, tornadoes, torrential downpour, hailstones and coals of fire falling from the sky, lightning and tsunamis. Wouldn't it be cool if God answered your prayers the way he answers David's prayer in Psalm 18? Wouldn't that be cool? 
God, I need to know what's your will for my life. Earthquakes. Smoke from his nostrils. God, what should I do about this fire from his mouth? Riding on an angel, he comes. Thick, dark storm clouds. Jesus, I don't know what to do. Help me. Tornadoes, torrential downpour, hailstones, coals of fire falling from the sky, lightning and tsunamis, all because you prayed. Wouldn't it be cool if every time you prayed about anything that God would answer and show up like this? How cool would that be? Well, the truth of the matter is this. He does answer your prayers this way. You may not see things like this, and I doubt that David did either. What David means when he describes God this way is that God is a faithful God who keeps covenant with those he has redeemed. When David describes God with all of this imagery, he's not saying that God literally showed up this way for him. He's saying that God showed up as the covenant-keeping God that intervened in Israel's life in the book of Exodus. Remember in the book of Exodus, Yahweh showed up the same way that David describes here. In the plagues on Egypt, Yahweh sent hailstones and fire. The fiery blast of his nostrils parted the Red Sea. And then at Mount Sinai, the Lord appeared with thunder, lightning, clouds, smoke, fire, and earthquake. So what David is saying when he prays this way is that the God of Exodus shows up. The faithful covenant-keeping redeemer of Israel answers his prayers. And that's who we pray to as well, Grace. Now, doesn't that make you want to pray? Even though you fail him all the time, just like Israel did in the book of Exodus, he hears your prayers, your cries reach his ears, and he responds because he is faithful when you are fickle. And when you realize that Jesus is this kind of God, that he is faithful when you are not, that he is committed when you are not, it will increase your intimacy and love for him. So while we should be cautious in speaking of our love and commitment to God, while we should be cautious in singing about our love and commitment to God, that doesn't mean that there's no intimacy whatsoever. It doesn't mean that there's no love. It doesn't mean that there's no relationship with God. There is love. We do love him. We just don't love him perfectly. And our love, though weak and pathetic, does increase when we realize that God is faithful even when we are faithless. When we realize that his love is steadfast, when our love stinks, when we realize that he is faithful when we are fickle, then it stirs our hearts and increases our love. And that's why David says, my, 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 in verse two. He describes the Lord with all of these my's. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. When you can finally admit that your commitment to God stinks, when you can finally admit that your love stinks, and you begin to realize just how faithful God is, then you'll praise him the way David does here by stacking up all these first-person personal pronouns. When you realize how faithful God is when you run away from him all the time, you'll start piling up all these personal pronouns. You're my God, my rescuer, my redeemer, my savior. There's intimacy 
But perhaps what is so shocking is that even though our commitment stinks, even though our love for God stinks, God delights in us. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 19. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He rescued me because he delighted in me. How astounding that God delights in his people. How incredible and out out of this world that God takes pleasure in his people. And it's all because of Jesus. That, my friends, is 100% pure, unadulterated gospel. God sees Jesus when he sees us. When God looks at you right now, Christian, as God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. Do you know what God's heart does when he sees his son? It beats fast because God takes pleasure in his son. Because as the scripture says, Jesus always did everything that pleased the Father. Therefore, God delights in us because when he sees us, he doesn't see our sin and our failure. He knows it. He's God. He knows it. But when he looks at you, he sees his son. He sees someone who fully obeyed the law. God loves us just like he loves his son, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God, you've got to personalize it. God loves you just like he loves Jesus. If you're a Christian and you're in union with Christ, when God sees you, he sees his son. Sinclair Ferguson described union with Christ this way. It's as if all the medals and honors of Christ have been pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. How in the world can God delight in us? It's because we are in union with his son. His life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We are so in union with him. Nothing can separate that so that when God sees us, he sees us. Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? It's mind-boggling. I'm flabbergasted because I know my sin. But that's how his love works. That's how grace works. Grace is the good news of the gospel that God is always holding on to us. No matter how we fail him, no matter how fickle we are, and we are, his love endures forever. And that's why grace is different from law. The law demands. The law is good. We'll see that next week in Psalm 19. The law is good. It comes from God. Of course it's good. But it demands perfection. And none of us measure up. But grace doesn't make demands. Grace doesn't come and make demands of us to hold on to God. No, the gospel doesn't do that. Grace, like, grace, grace will like mug you in the alleyway. You don't even see it coming. It's like God just, he boom, he gets you and he hangs on to you. That's how grace is. It doesn't let you go. We try to run from God, but listen, let me save you a lot of trouble. You try to run from God, grace is faster. You can't outrun grace. You can't. It always wins. Grace has the best shoes, the best little flimsy shorts and tank top. Grace will always catch you. You can't outrun grace. And that's why the gospel is a promise that no matter how weak we are, no matter how much we fail, no matter how bad our love stinks, no matter how fickle we are, and we are, 
God will not let us go. The gospel declares to unfaithful sinners like us that because of Jesus, we live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of God. So understand this, Christian. If by faith you have turned from your sins and you trust in Jesus, this is true for you, Christian. You live in the perpetual favor. Nothing can change it. And the unabated delight of God, nothing can change his delight and his joy over you. If you are a Christian, it's because God chose you. It's because he placed you forever in the sphere of his perpetual favor and unabated delight. And there is nothing that you can do to get yourself inside that sphere. And there is nothing that you can do to get yourself outside of that sphere. Please let me repeat that. There is nothing you can do to get yourself into the sphere of his perpetual favor and unabated delight over you. And there is nothing you can do to get yourself out of that sphere. Why? Because God has done it all because it is all of grace. You can't sin your way out of grace. You can mess up your life big time. You can bring serious consequences into your life. I'm not saying that, but if God saved you, he saved you forever. You can mess up your life big time by sin. I know that. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, thinking about getting the tattoo. You can mess your life up by sin, but you can't sin your way out of God's grace if you're a Christian because he has you because he's holding on to you. Now, in verses 20 through 27, don't be alarmed with what you hear David saying because David speaks of his love for God and David makes it sound like his love for God doesn't stink. When you read verses 20 to 27 in Psalm 18, it sounds like David contradicts everything that I've already said about how our commitment to God stinks. But I think David and I agree. The question arises when you read verses 20 to 27. How can David say that he is blameless? How can David say that he has clean hands? Does he really think he can get away with this humble brag on Twitter? Does he really think that he's squeaky clean? Well, the answer is of course not. David knows that he is a sinner. David knows that the only righteousness that he has has been given to him by God. But keep in mind the context. David has just come off the battlefield. He has just fought with his enemies, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Yahweh. And he defeated them, he says, because the Lord intervened, because the Lord empowered him. So when David compares himself with your average unbelieving pagan from his day, compared to those guys, David says, hey, I'm righteous. That's all he means. That's what we saw last week in Psalm 17. Compared to the evil men that David was facing, David was a saint. But it's all because he's in union with Christ, anticipating that anyway. He knows the Lord. But what I want us to see is what was behind the Lord giving David victory that day on the battlefield. In verses 28 to 48, we won't read them all because you're hungry. David describes his victory over his enemies But the key to his victory is found in verse 50. He says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. That's the key. It was God's steadfast love for David that was behind his victories. God's love, not David's love for God. That was the key. It was the Lord's steadfast love. We saw this last week in Psalm 17. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's loyal love, 
covenant-keeping love. It's as we saw, and I read from the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That was the key to David's victory. The point of this psalm is not David's love for Yahweh. Don't read this and walk away and think, man, David really loved God. That's not the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is Yahweh's love for David. Yahweh's commitment to David. Yahweh's devotion to David. This psalm highlights God's work. It highlights God's redemption. It highlights God's rescue of David. David is not the point of this psalm. Jesus is. Jesus is the point of Psalm 18. And when you read this psalm, you are to be struck with the overwhelming, unending love of God that he showers down on fickle people like us. And we see God's unending, overwhelming love most clearly at the cross, don't we? At the cross, the God of Exodus showed up. God showed up in fire, smoke, dark storm clouds, lightning, rain, and he poured his wrath out on his own son, Jesus, for our sin. Jesus took the curse of the law for us. Jesus was punished for us. He was condemned for our rebellion. He stood guilty in our place because we haven't loved God the way that the law demands. The one who loved God with all of his heart stood condemned in the place of fickle people like us whose love for God stinks. That should astound you. Never get tired of hearing that. The faithful one went to the cross for the fickle ones. The one who was steadfast in his love died for those whose love stinks. This is the gospel. Believe it and rest in it. The faithful one went to the cross for us, the fickle ones. The one who was steadfast in his love and devotion and commitment to his father died for those of us whose love for God, frankly, stinks. This is the gospel. The gospel is a promise that no matter how weak we are, how much we fail, how bad our love stinks, God will not let us go. Grace is the good news of the gospel that God is always holding on to us. No matter how we fail him, no matter how fickle we are, his love endures forever. Grace is different from the law because the law makes demands and it demands perfection of each one of us, but grace doesn't make demands. Grace doesn't come and make demands of us to hold on to God. Grace doesn't come and say, now that you're a Christian, hold on to God with all of your might and don't let go. Grace doesn't make demands. The gospel doesn't make demands. The gospel is a promise that no matter how weak we are, and we are, and no matter how much we fail, and we do, no matter how bad our love stinks, and it does, no matter how fickle we are, and we are, God will not let us go. That is good news for this sinner. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son who was empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey the law, to be perfect and be without sin. It was not easy. It was not a walk in the park for him. He struggled, as Hebrews said, with loud cries and tears, crying out to you because you were the only one that could save him. He was the perfect God-man. He fully obeyed the law on our behalf. And in this wonderful story, God, he takes our weakness and failure and goes to the cross. He takes our sin, our rebellion, and goes to the cross. And he gives us his perfect life. And because of that, we can sing wholeheartedly this morning. We can sing wholeheartedly even though our love stinks. We can still sing wholeheartedly, it is well with our soul. Amen.